Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Welcome along. I, um, if you haven't already, so that's First John chapter four. Um, you can make your way there. I'm Mick, one of the elders, uh, one of the three elders here. So we had an elders meeting on Wednesday. Once a month, we get together, uh, and it was it's just it's just been a really exciting time for us as elders to be able to see the way the church is stepping up, and to see the way that people are serving, that people are. Um, just looking out for each other um, and it's, a, it's just an exciting thing we've got stuff going on with the, the missions week next week and um, something special I'll tell you about the week after that as well um, but Kendall and I we were having a chat this week about a friend of ours who's currently in the mission field her name is Nadia and I'd like to tell you a bit about her so she um, she went to uni with Kendall and I and we we're all in first year med school together and uh, at that stage, Kendall was not a Christian, not a, not a believer at all. I was a backslidden Christian. Um, this story doesn't have heaps to do with me, except that I was there to witness it. But Nadia uh, was this bubbly, bright, young surfer girl who was in our first year of med school. And, and she was just uh, this, one, one of these people just smiled all the time, you know. Uh, but not a fake smiley person, someone who was genuinely a, a, a smiley person. And Kendall uh, and Nadia, uh, by God's providence, I think, were put in the same chute group in that first year of med school. And Nadia, we found out later, very, very quickly decided that Kendall was going to be the one that she was going to pray for. And so she had a little picture on her mirror, and every day she'd pray for Kendall. And she uh, would give her rides into uni so they could catch, you know, catch a ride together all the way from Swansea. It was a you know, half hour, 40 minute trip from Swansea into the uni. And she would, they would you know, go and meet on the beach in the morning. They were both beach girls. So they'd go hang out there and see the sunset come up and have a deep and meaningful conversations. And this continued on and Nadia gave Kendall uh, one or two books. So one was you know, like a just little devotional type book. And and it continued. And Nadia was one of these people who would just willingly share her faith. Uh, we're in first year uni and you can imagine med school, it's a, it's a pretty kind of secular place. And people are talking about all sorts of things that are really against uh, what we believe. And Nadia would always stand up and say, well, I don't believe that actually, this is what I believe. And she would always, in a, in a troop group, you, you could have a little get to know your troop group and inevitably, she would mention her relationship with Jesus. Uh, and initially people were kind of annoyed by it or put off by it or intrigued by it maybe. Uh, but people just came to accept it as her. And I think her witness grew because people knew that she was genuine. Anyway, a few years, a couple of years down the track and um, Kendall's in Jamaica and comes to faith, uh, partly through that witness of Nadia and, and get back, gets back to uni and, and, the, and when she first saw Nadia, they're walking to a lecture together and she said, oh, Nadia, I became a Christian. 
And Nadi just you know, broke down in tears. She said, I actually took my photo off the mirror just a few weeks ago. It's not that I didn't want you to be saved, but I had to pray for somebody else. Turns out she took the photo off just after Kendall was saved. That's um, a super cool thing, hey? There's something about people who are assured, who are confident in their faith, who are willing to share their faith, that has an impact on people around them, and something about people who love other people that has an impact on people around them. I was really moved, actually, I, I shared this, uh, what Nadia is doing now, she's a, a medical doctor in South Sudan. Uh, she married a guy called Chris, and they are just serving the local community in South Sudan. He's a, an engineer, and he's developing all sorts of technology um, for the local villages there and le- letting them develop their industry. Uh, and she's started a hospital and is teaching local people how to do healthcare. Uh, and they are sharing the gospel. And they've started churches, and they've been involved in other churches, and they are just continuing to share their faith nonstop. We, we shared this story with our four kids uh, just a week or two ago, and they decided that they wanted to do something to help out. So they get a few dollars pocket money each week, uh, and between the four of them, they managed to scrape together 750 bucks to put towards those guys. They've been saving for yonks. Um, there's something, I think, about loving sacrificially that's contagious. I'm going to suggest that what we're seeing in Nadia and others like her is the application of this very passage of 1 John today. There are three characteristics that John focuses on in this letter, in this section of this letter, in this chapter. Assurance, self-sacrificial love, and testifying or witnessing. And I'm excited to see what the Lord's going to do with us as we meditate on his words together. But first, let's just pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we just thank you for people like Nadia, for people like these three women in Turkey who were willing to put everything on the line to share the good news. It's a challenge to us. We thank you, Lord, that you work with each of us where we're at. So I invite you by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and to meet us right now, to work in our hearts. Lord, to to move us to the place that you want us to be. Open your word to us, Lord. May May we stay in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got to be honest with you. Um, 1 John is a difficult book to teach. On, on one hand, there are these standout verses that are just like the most quotable quotes. But I've heard one teacher say it kind of feels like teaching Proverbs. Because, because with every time you get to a new verse, it seems like it's disjointed from the verses near it. It kind of seems like this jumble of, 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 of disconnected statements just following one after the other. It can make it a little bit difficult to follow. And, and if you look at the outlines in all the commentaries, they're all completely different. None of them agree. But I am convinced that there is a flow to both the whole letter and also to each individual section. It's going to be my aim today to try and illuminate that progression that John has in the book and in this section so that we are able to uh, let the word really speak for itself. A part of that task is just recognising that John has these parenthetical sections, these kind of bracketed sections. Um, And Paul does the same in his letters. But with Paul, they're a little bit more obvious to pick. So there's this, there's this flow and there are these diversions. 
Interestingly, some of the most quotable verses are those very diversions. So they still need due attention, but they don't necessarily form part of the overall flow of the book of 1 John or the letter of 1 John. Now, John actually uses some of the most simple language in all the New Testament. In fact, if you want to go and study Greek, what they say is start with John, okay? Because the language is simple, but the concepts are so profound. They require extended thought, extended meditation, and to be honest, a lot more mental processing, I think, than even some of the wordier parts of, of Paul's writing. So to help us to understand where we're at in this book, I just want to remind us of a few brief points about the book of 1 John. If you, if you haven't been with us for very long, this is a book I've been teaching through just little chunks at a time for a long period of time. This is about the ninth or tenth installment. So it's a standalone, it's a standalone message. You don't have to have heard anything else. We'll make sure everyone's up to speed. But the overarching theme of, of outlined by John himself in the beginning of the letter is walking in the light, where light is, is both truth and goodness. It seems like, you know, there are, there are things that he talks about that are walking in the light. So things like walking in humility, practicing righteousness, avoiding idols and love for the brothers. Now, two of these ideas become very prominent in the letter and become the main sub-theme and the secondary sub-theme of the letter itself. Okay, so the main sub-theme is love. The main sub-theme is love. The big thing is walking in the light, but the main sub-theme is love. Specifically, love for God and love for your brother. And so John just keeps on coming back and hitting this topic. The secondary sub-theme is assurance. So that's both the evidence that you can see that you are saved, but also the means of knowing that assurance. And we'll talk about that a bit today. And then there are these, these parentheses, these, the, what I call the d- divine distractions, overcoming Satan, understanding antichrists, receiving our anointing, habitual sin, prayer, overcoming the world, and we'll see one today on testifying and confession. So if you could picture that the whole book is, is about walking in the light or walking in truth and goodness, then in almost every passage that we've looked at so far, we've seen the main sub-theme, that's love, We've seen the secondary sub-theme, that's assurance, and at least one of the sidetracks, and today is no different. So with that intro, let's dive into the text. You'll see up here, abide, love, testify. These are the three themes we'll be looking at today. Verse 13 of 1 John chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So we can see here exactly what we're talking about as something that John keeps coming back to in this letter, and that is the theme of assurance. John keeps on nailing this theme over and over again. And I won't labour on it because we have taught on this before, but there are some nuances here that are nice to try and grasp. First, what is assurance? It's the state of knowing that you are right with God and that you'll be right with Him at judgment. It's as simple as that. But this assurance is a key theme in this letter. John wants believers not just to be saved, but to know that they're saved. And so John hits this theme in two different ways. First, he reminds people what the evidence is of their assurance. And he does this repeatedly through this letter. In chapter 1, 6, he says that if you walk in the light, this is evidence of your fellowship with God. In chapter 2, verse 3, if you keep his commandments, we know that we know him. In chapter 2, verse 7, if you love your brother, you abide in the light. In chapter 2, verse 29, if you practice righteousness, you are born of him, born of God. 
In, in chapter 3, verse 18, if we love in deed and truth, we are of the truth. And in chapter 3, verse 24, if we keep his commandments, we abide in God and he in us. So that's the first way that John talks about assurance, the evidence, the what that we see to know that we're saved. And we'll look at two of these evidences in a second, but there is a second way as well that John approaches assurance. And as mentioned a couple of times, it answers the question, how do we know? How do we know that we're saved? We see what we know, how do we know that we're saved? What is the means of our knowing our salvation, our standing with God? He hints at it in chapter 2, verse 27, when he says, you have been anointed. But he says it explicitly in the last chapter, chapter 3, verse 24, he says, by this we know, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And John nails it again here in verse 13 of chapter 4. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. John says he has given us of his spirit. That is, when we are saved, we receive the spirit and he remains with us. This is basic Christian belief. His spirit resides inside us and testifies with our spirit. All communication we have with God is through his spirit. Remember when Jesus said, when I go, I will send you a helper? Remember he said that? That helper is the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit can also come upon us at times for specific purposes. That's not the sense it's used in this section, but it's a conversation for another day. So this sense is that permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what about this idea of abiding or residing? We've talked about this before, but it's just a word that means to live inside of. To remain in, abide, just means remain in. It's used metaphorically in John as a situation where something moves in and stays for good. Something changes and it's pretty much changed permanently. So it's the Holy Spirit indwelling us, abiding in us, that allows us to truly know our status before God. But John doesn't leave it there. Remember I said that there were two ways that John talks about assurance. So that's the means, the Holy Spirit, and then there's also the evidence. And you'll see the next verse begins with and. One thing about the Greek is that there was no punctuation in the Greek. No verse numbers, no full stops, no capital letters to start a sentence, no brackets, no exclamation marks, nothing like that. Okay, there was none of this. So, so one sentence would roll right into the next sentence. So in this instance, you could just continue that thought from verse 13 all the way through from verse 13 into 14, 15, 16. So he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us. How? Because he has given us of his spirit. And then verse 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So there are two chief evidences referenced here which together with abiding form the theme of this whole passage, in my opinion, that believers will do two things. First, they will testify. Believers will testify. This is one of the evidences that you are a believer. And second, they will love. Now, that believers need to love both God and one another is nothing new for this letter. In fact, this is at least the fourth time John has come back to this topic in detail. Remember, love is the key sub-theme of the entire book, right? In fact, in this chapter alone, various different words indicating love are mentioned 28 times. 28 times 
in 21 verses. In fact, John is about to spend the rest of the chapter talking about this love, so we're going to get back to that in a second. But the other evidence is confessing and testifying. So what's unique for 1 John in this section is this idea of testifying and of confessing. Number one, believers will testify that the Father has sent his Son to be Saviour of the world. And number two, that they will confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now confess and testify, they're not fancy words. The word te translated testify means in Greek pretty much what testify means in English. It's the same general idea. It's giving evidence as a witness. That the word is martyrio, right? So it's where we get martyr from. But martyr, it doesn't really mean anything fancy other than just witness. A witness. Now, the slight difference between how it's used in that period of time and how we use testify now is that we pretty much use testify in a, court, in a courtroom setting. Right? But, but in that day, in that time, they used testify more metaphorically, as well as in the court setting. So it's used by John in that sense. But the, the meaning is pretty much the same. We publicly proclaim the evidence, which often is from our own experience, of what God has done. And confess. That just means to verbally agree with. It's literally to say the same. Homo logos. Same say. Say the same thing. So the idea of, the idea of it, though, is it's verbal. So it's not just believing, it's confessing, it's verbal. In, in other words, it's meant to be heard by others. So these two things have a similar meaning. meaning. And I think that it's a little bit of Hebrew parallelism. This one of the, these things that, that the Hebrew people would do, the Jewish people would do, where they, they say two things in a slightly different way. But they mean almost the same thing. And what it means is you can apply the verb to both of the, both of the objects of the sentence. So first, Jesus is the Son of God. And second, the Father sent him to be the Savior of the world. What does it mean to be the son of God? Do you recall when Jesus was on trial, the Jewish leaders said, they said in Matthew 26, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And what's Jesus' response? What does he say? Yes, it is as you say, exactly. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the son of man, that's a, that's a reference to the Messiah, the son of man from Daniel, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven what's the response of the leaders at that time they want to kill him why well they bring him before Pilate and they say something interesting they, it says the Jews insisted saying to Pilate we get this from John's gospel we have a law and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the son of God now the only law they could possibly be referencing is the Levitical law of blasphemy in other words, they understood that Jesus was claiming to be of the same nature as God by accepting the title Son of God. So we testify, we testify to Jesus' divinity. Now the second idea that the Father has sent him to be saviour of the world is fairly self-explanatory, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not die, but have eternal life. That's testifying and confessing. One of the big themes in this section and one of those little parenthetical sections or one of those divine distractions that John has in this letter. And what about love? Let's see what John has to say about love. First, back in the verse we just read in verse 16, we read four important facts about this love. First, we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us, right? One important fact. The second important fact, God is love. Love is not something God just does. 
It's his very essence. God cannot but be loving. God's moral law flows from his very nature. There's so much to unpack here about the nature of love and the Trinity and about you know, simple biblical answers to philosophical challenges to Christianity. But just know this, that God's love is his very nature. He never stops being loving. Even when God judges, he remains loving. Even when God, God disciplines, he remains loving. When you or I love someone and then we hate someone, we have to change our mind to do that. When we, are, when we, are, we, we can't just stay loving the whole time, but God can. He's able to love through everything that he does. The third important point about love in verse 16 is that we are called to abide in love. As per our definition of abide earlier, that's just really remaining in love. Remain in love. Remain in love. We continue in love. And fourth, the promise of the assurance that we discussed earlier is specifically that assuming that we belong to God, we will abide in love. And if this is true, then we will abide in God and he will abide in us. So it's one of the evidences, isn't it? This is really just closing out the question raised in verse 13 of how we can know that we abide in him. And so finishing on this, this foray on these two topics of testifying assurance, John then continues to unpack this theme of love in verse 17. Read with me. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Again, there's some important points here about love. By this refers to verse 16. If you back up to verse 16, by the mutual abiding of God in us and us in God, right, is love perfected with us. Which brings us to the second point about love in this verse, the idea of God's love being perfected with us or in us, the believer. That word perfected can also mean ended or completed or finished. The right and natural conclusion of God's love is his love in and through his children. Do you get that? So God's love is made perfect by being expressed by God's children. That's what it's saying. Expressed by us to our brothers first and then to the world around us. That's what it means for God's love to be perfected in us. It's expressed by us. A third point about love in this verse, as he is, so also are we in this world, simply means that God made his love known to the world by sending his son. And so should we make known to the world by living out the love that he has shown us. But his final point here is confidence. What does confidence have to do with love? Well, we're seeing here another mention of assurance. The secondary sub-theme of this book. But this time we see a particular application of that assurance or that confidence, namely that it's confidence for the day of judgment. Let's keep reading and see what John says about that. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I was listening to a song recently. Um, now that I've hit 40, I, uh, I'm starting to love those, you know, those piano ballads. And um, Kendall's with me on that, I think. It just kind of seems to go with the territory. I remember when I, I was a teenager, I used to listen to like really bad heavy metal. Uh, I had a, a band that it was called Soulfly and they were like perpetually angry. And um, 
I, I loved it. <laughs> just, you know, you just get that angst out as a teenager. I remember sitting in the car one time and, and I'm sitting there next to mum and she's obviously trying to connect with me as a teenager. And she says, you know, Mick, I, well, she called me Michael. You know, Michael, I can see why you like this music. It's got a really good beat, doesn't it? And me and I was like, <laughs> like so I'm like, man, like my mum was a good mum. You know, like she, she really knew how to connect. Anyway. My tastes have chilled a little bit, so I'm listening to this John Legend ballad the other day. It's uh, obviously the suggested track after my death metal playlist. Um, the lyrics are something like this. Adrenaline running through my veins, I'm a skeleton when you say my name, and the high, I know it never goes away, like jumping out an airplane to swim with the sharks. That existential feeling when you're staring at the stars is a hurricane in my head, but the lightning in my heart makes it worth it. Yeah, I still get nervous. When you walk through the door and you look in my eyes, yeah, it feels, yeah, it feels like the very first time I can fall for you forever I'm certain because I still get nervous when your lips hit my lips and the fireworks fly sending sparks through the air like a fourth of July I can fall for you forever I'm certain because I still get nervous every time every time we touch it's like paradise fell down from above in the high even too much ain't enough no no like flying in the fast lane no headlights in the dark that existential feeling when you wonder what you are I got a wild wind in my head but the butterflies in my heart make it worth it yeah I still get nervous now, as far as love songs go, it's pretty tame, right? Some of it even sounds a little bit romantic, to be honest. But this is the idea in our world of what love is. I want you to compare it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Well, how about this? God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the kind of love the Bible teaches. There's nothing wrong with romance, but it's a, in a world obsessed with romance, this kind of love is revolutionary. Verse 18 says, There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So there's this general truth there that we can focus on good thoughts to drive out unhelpful or fearful thoughts. I mean, that's generally true, right? We can meditate on God's wonderful attributes or even enjoy the beauty he's put before us. Um, that's not primarily what this verse is saying, however. I would suggest that this verse is often misused when it's quoted. Because in context, the fear that it's talking about here is fear of judgment. The fact is this, there is a day of judgment. And that should make you afraid. Unless... Unless you confess Jesus and all that that entails. You see, this is the pinnacle of what we could proclaim, isn't it? That Jesus, who knew no sin, who was born miraculously of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, was killed for our sakes. He took our sin, he took our failings, our inadequacy, he took our error upon himself, and he hung it on that cross. The sacrificial lamb, pictured all the way through the Old Testament, the sacrificial lamb that could never take away the sins of man, he did exactly that. But not only that, he conquered death, rising as the first fruits of all who would follow him. We don't need to fear judgment. 
We can have confidence if we confess Jesus, if we belong to the Father, if we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting here that while verse 17 says that our expression of God's love perfects or completes that love, verse 18 says that we are perfected by love. In what way? Well, the truth is we can be saved and continue, continue psychologically in fear. Even in, though intellectually we know that we are right with God. Why does this happen? Well, the answer is in the text because we haven't truly comprehended the magnitude with which God loves us. There's a difference between knowing a fact and truly knowing through experience. And how do you experience God's love? How do you experience God's love, Calvary Chapel? How do you experience anyone's love? You spend time with them, right? How do you spend time with God? Well, you pray and you read his word and you pray some more. And you get together in fellowship. God is here moving among us. This is how love perfects you. We're not going to be perfect this side of glorification. It's not going to happen. But we are made more and more into his likeness and specifically in relation to fear as we spend time in his love. And this fact is applicable generally, I think. We can have faulty views of ourselves, right? even though we know intellectually they're not true. For example, a feeling of inadequacy or a feeling of being unloved or unlovable. It's the same solution as for fear, meditation on what God says about you, experiencing what God says about you. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. This has to be one of the most basic yet one of the most profound truths of the Christian witness. I've said it before, I'll say it again, Christianity is a religion of response. We never take the first step with God, never. We never love him first. We never pursue him unless he has already pursued us. And when it comes to loving others, well, we all have a certain ability. Christians and non-Christians alike, we have an ability to love. Some seem more loving than others. There are people who seem loving and some of them are not believers. Many of you have seen that to an extent. But there are a number of ways that Christians can love that non-Christians cannot love. After all, the most loving thing you can do for someone is to share eternal life with them. And you can't do that unless you've known eternal life. And by def definition, a non-Christian doesn't love God. But what are the other ways Christians are able to love differently to non-Christians? You see, we all have our human inbuilt limit for love and for self-sacrifice. You know, we're all made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God in his likeness. We are made with the capacity for love. It's broken, but it's there. But Christians can and regularly do go beyond that limit. That's by definition an impossibility, unless there's extra help. And as we've seen for the believer, the extra help is here. We are motivated by God through his Holy Spirit to love self-sacrificially as Jesus demonstrated and as he calls us to. This is exactly what's going on with these three girls in Turkey. What are they motivated by? By love. This is exactly what we're seeing in Nadia Fretza, serving the poorest of the poor in South Sudan. Nadia Lowe now. It's love. This is why she reached out to Kendall in the first place, because she loved her. 
Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There's an implicit message here is that, that God is perfect, even though God is perfect, and even though our brother is imperfect, it's much easier to demonstrate love towards someone who you can actually see. And God is invisible. We're told exactly that fact earlier in this book, that no one has ever seen God. And even, even if you, if, if, well, even if you can't see him, you can still love him. But if you can't even love the brother in front of you, how are you going to love God? The sad thing is this, how many people have you known who claim to love God, who claim to love Jesus, who hate the church? The church is their brothers and sisters if they claim to love Jesus. Even if you somehow postulate that the church has gotten all of its organization wrong, you know, that it's meeting in the wrong way, which is demonstrably untrue, it's still the place where your brothers and sisters assemble. If you don't assemble with them, how can you love them? But it equally applies with us. As John continues, verse 21, this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John winds up this chapter with a summary. If you love God, you will love your brother. It's not only a command, it's also evidence of your genuine relationship with God. It's so important that John just comes back to it over and over and over again. My question is this, does it convict you? The reality is that if this is simple to do, if it was just the natural result of coming into the family of God, then John would have no need to keep reminding us, right? So I want to ask you this. How are you going loving? Is there someone that you're having a hard time forgiving? Is there someone you're having a hard time loving? Are you not even with people who are difficult to love? Well, we need to bring it to the Lord. We need to say, Lord, heal me from this. How do you go loving sacrificially? What have you given up to love your brothers and sisters? Time? Sleep? Money? Reputation? Comfort? Is there something God is calling you to sacrifice for Him? Maybe you're not even there right now. Maybe you recognize that you're not right with God. Perhaps you recognize that you do, in fact, fear judgment. Or maybe you don't and you should. Maybe you're living outside of God's purpose, but you can feel his gentle tug that says, hey, I just want to love you. Are you going to let me? You know, receiving God's love is not a difficult thing to do. As we said in John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not die but have eternal life. Receiving love is as, as easy as receiving Jesus Christ as your saviour. Is it going to be a road without problems? No. Will you mess up? Yes. Will other people let you down? Absolutely. Will God let you down? No. Never. Maybe you're not struggling with assurance. Maybe overall, by God's grace, you're walking in the light. You know your position as a child of God. You're abiding in him. Maybe you don't struggle with loving your brother. 
I want to ask you, how do you go with testifying about him as per verse 14? Testifying that God has sent his son as saviour of the world. When was the last time you told someone about Jesus? I feel the conviction myself. It's not me preaching. It's me being preached to. We have an opportunity, I think, to put into practice a little bit of what we're learning today. Because next week, as Tony said, is Missions Week. And we'll be looking at just a few of the missions that Calvary Chapel supports as a church. We're a small church, but we do support some mission, I'll tell you that. This is people who are doing what John is talking about right here. Sacrificing in love. So as to proclaim the assurance that they have in Jesus. Or they're equipping others to do that same thing. Are you going to partner in prayer for those guys? Will you do it? The week after next, we're going to be hearing a testimony from, from our sister Nikki. Okay, that's going to be our Sunday service. We're also going to give an opportunity to respond to the message of the gospel at that service. Now this, I would suggest, is a great opportunity to bring someone along. Someone who you think God might be moving in. Can you think of anyone in that category? If you can't, maybe pray about that. Would you commit to praying for that person? Would you consider that step of boldness that's going to be required? Maybe you don't know the right words to say. It's okay. We can learn these things together. And remember, we have the Holy Spirit. He's with you. It's amazing the times when I've, when I've preached the gospel to someone and I, I you know, get ideas jumbled in my head and you start talking and it just comes out. Have you experienced that before? Where it comes out and you're like, where did that come from? And people are responding. The important thing to remember is that when you walk out of this room into the Monday pulpit, God goes with you and before you and after you. He doesn't demand perfection, but he does require a willing heart. Let's pray together, shall we, that God would do exactly that in us. Father, Give us hearts that are willing. Lord, we desire to be used by you. Lord, thank you for the assurance that you give. Thank you that we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have accepted, that if we have accepted your son Jesus as our personal saviour, that we are right with you. It doesn't matter what's happened. If we are willing to lay down our lives, Lord God, you will use us. So we thank you for the, for, the, for the privilege it is of not only being in your family, being called the children of God, Lord God, but of being used by you as your sent ones. So Father, would you send us? Equip us, we pray. Lord, thank you for the Holy Spirit that goes with us. We pray that you will prepare hearts even now in our city to hear the message of the good news. That you have sent your Son to be the saviour of the world. Father, we praise you for your goodness, praise you for your word, for the way you communicate to us. Just bless us as we go and as we fellowship together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings. 